Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. I think I mentioned earlier, there's this giant wealth transfer that's coming through to from our generation, from our parents' generation to us. It's like $68 trillion in the U.S., um, and they're estimating that half of that's going to go to charitable purpose. And so kind of harnessing those people that are going to have all of this, you know, well, connecting them with people that have stories in philanthropy and best practice in it um, and kind of funneling them through to all the other people on the podcast. Those are the wise words of Rachel English. Rachel is Foundation Manager at Mutual Trust, Chair at Nexus Global Summit and a trustee of the English Family Foundation. It's safe to say Rachel knows philanthropy inside out and plays a key role in the ecosystem from a range of divergent roles. So it was amazing to talk with her to demystify philanthropy, talk more about encouraging greater diversity in philanthropy, to talk about the role of philanthropy generally and specifically during a crisis like COVID-19 and much, much more. I particularly valued Rachel's wisdom, composure and clarity of thinking in this conversation. Humans of Purpose is now 100% community-powered, with our generous Patreon supporters enabling me to cover the majority of my monthly costs of production. So a big thank you to our community of supporters, including Humanism, Clyde, Susie, Kynan, Deb, Sue K, Carmen, Misha, Jasmine, Sue P, Joel H, Levi, Jules, Sally, Will, B, Lyndon, Olivia, Joe, McCartan, Joel F, and Stuart. You can become a monthly Patreon supporter today for as little as the price of a single cup of coffee at $4. Of course, you can support us at whatever level you like, and I do recommend checking out the Humans Plus option for some amazing behind-the-scenes access and ability to, ability to be connected to our podcast guests. We'll soon be running our first live Zoomcast with our Patreon audience able to log in and attend, which are also uh, sure to add an extra dimension to the podcast quality and, and enjoyment for me too. If you're looking to share an aligned message about a product or service that our listeners may enjoy, do check out our new Spaceman tier also. To learn more, just head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose or just hit the link in our show notes. We recorded this conversation last week via Zoom. I really enjoyed this conversation and I'm sure you will too. Rachel, it is great to be with you. Welcome to Humans of Purpose. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. A little bit ter- nervous. Thank you for making me feel welcome. You have no need to be nervous. I promise to be very kind. Um, I've heard a lot about you from philanthropy, from youth, uh, from change makers. I'm really keen to ask you about a number of things, but before we do so, to just hear a bit about your own journey into the space and um, how you came to be doing the multiple important things that you're doing today. Thanks. Um, so I suppose now I know that what I'm trying to do is, you know, create spaces for people to get people to get involved in philanthropy and think meaningfully about their impact and what the, what impact they can have in the community. But I had no idea about that until probably 18 months ago. It sort of has materialised as, um, as I sometimes do. But I grew up in what was a very standard Brisbane life, mum, dad, three kids, dog, pick events, that kind of upbringing. And I studied... I started five different degrees at UQ, landed on economics and psychology, um, didn't really know what they were going to lead me to. Um, but at the same time that I was doing that, my parents set up the English Family Foundation in 2010. Um, but that was mostly mum and dad's thing at that point. I knew that the foundation was there. I'd been to East Timor with dad in year 11 to 
shake some of the private school girl out of me, um, but mostly was oblivious in my own little world. Um, and my first exposure, I suppose, to the social impact space was getting asked to speak at the first Nexus Australia Summit in 2013. Um, I got a call up from Amanda Miller to talk about forging my own philanthropic path um, and had no idea what my philanthropic path was, really what my family's philanthropic path was, but attending that summit and sort of having my eyes opened up to all of the different things that people were doing and the things that people cared about um, really kind of opened my eyes up to this space and that kind of set me on a path that has led me here. It's, a, it's amazing. So it's, it's quite, uh, it's always, you know, when I ask people to describe their journey, there's always multiple points of um, reflection and self-inquiry and it requires different actors to pop in and out. But mm. I think Amanda Miller asking you to speak at a Nexus event sounds like a, quite a, a typical uh, stopping off point at an important philanthropy journey. Yeah. Yeah. I was in my last year of uni. I was studying a degree where I like was interested in it. I was interested in the way that people make decisions and, you know, how people spend their money but I had no idea what that was going to be and then this opportunity materialized in my life um but like the um the the interesting like economics and psychology to Mm -hmm. me that's such an interesting choice for somebody who ends up in philanthropy because you know yeah it works quite well yeah but at the time I didn't know that I suppose you know higher power somewhere just sending me on a on a journey um but yeah having to speak at a conference meant that I had to fast track my understanding of what my foundation did and what role we were trying to pay play in all these different bits and pieces and ended up with me um about six months later moving to Melbourne to work at the Foundation of Young Australians who was hosting Nexus at that point. So it's amazing because you're kind of in a space with so many change makers and budding social entrepreneurs. You would have been in the mix with all the YSP people and some amazing cohorts of young talent that I've no doubt met at a few Nexus or Nexus Nexi conferences. Yeah, uh, definitely. I um, also, that's what I was doing at FYA. I was uh, helping out with that YSP oh, program right. in 2014, and so that was what Jamie Green and Jamin Heppel and Aaron McNeely and. I was living with Hunter Johnson at the time. Like it was just like surrounded by all of these amazing people who gave a shit about all of these really important things. And I was like, holy, like I just, it was very inspiring and intimidating. And um, what was it like? Because you were kind of hanging out with these people and you were one of them, but you were also an important funder. So was it kind of, um, are there sort of two conceptions of self there or were you thinking a lot about the, on the ground, the change that happens, but also how do you enable that change? How, how does that kind of shape your thinking? Yeah, it um, it was a really big period of um, of growth and like understanding of myself through that. Like we, going into this world, not really understanding too much about uh, philanthropy or, you know, my dad's business or the wealth before, you know, much before that time and then starting to work in an organisation that your family was also funding um, and we were funding social enterprise and all my mates are social entrepreneurs and I really, um, I had my guard up for a lot of it, just that don't talk to me like people are just being friendly to me to try to get my money, like that's sort of where my mentality was at the time. It's taken a lot of um, a lot of work and a lot of sort of opening up to to know that that's not the case that you can actually just have conversations with people and that money is just a tool to be able to 
um, you know, to enact change and to be able to do pretty incredible things. But it can sometimes feel like quite an isolating thing as well. Is it quite um, common? Um, I mean, I, I'm guessing a lot of your colleagues or people you know who are also in different family offices um, mm. have to cross the, the same kind of forked road where they have to start to think about money and uh, social relationships um, without, you know, thinking that, you know, someone's always trying to get money out of them. Is that something that you've experienced a bit? Yeah, it's this issue of the power that comes with money and rightly or wrongly it's there, this this power dynamic that we're really trying really hard, you know, in philanthropy in our sector generally to kind of dismantle that and to appreciate more that people that are on the ground and doing the work are actually the most important person in the funder, you know, grantee relationship. But the world sees money and sees like that's the important person and so really breaking that down uh, within yourself and within your personal relationships is a really important thing and it's made me such a not saying that I'm a great philanthropist but it's made me a much better philanthropist for for having those relationships and working um, at FYA and I think a lot of that has come through the work with Nexus which really acknowledges that um, the gap between philanthropy and social change and the whole purpose of Nexus globally and in Australia sort of to bridge those two camps and sort of find that commonality knowing that we're all working to create change we've just got these different levers that we can pull um, what do you think um, what do you think the purpose of you is first of all but also within you know philanthropy maybe I'll ask as a second question you know mm. what is your purpose in the philanthropy space and what do you think um, philanthropy what what call is philanthropy answering right now in society mm. Uh, my purpose, I think, as I've got it worked out at the moment, is to enable social change by creating safe spaces for people to get involved in philanthropy and think meaningfully about the impact that wealth can have on the, the community. So looking at philanthropy itself, but more broadly at the person as a whole, you know, that there's increased rates of anxiety and depression amongst people from wealthy families and substance misuse is like sort of just creating a space for people to be able to talk about the things that they're experiencing um, in wealth and using my own experience of that as well. It's sort of where I think that I can unlock a bit more uh, funding into this space. You know, if people feel comfortable with themselves and comfortable to think about their money, then they're more willing to do something with it rather than have it sit in a bank account and just get more zeros on the end of it. Um, so that's where my role, I think, is philanthropy more broadly. I think our role is to, I was going to say to put the money in and get out of the way and let the people that are, you know, have lived experience and have expertise on the ground to do the work that they're doing. But I think there's also a real need for philanthropists to engage a bit more deeply and do a bit more learning of our own to what's happening in the world outside of, you know, the bubble that is a very white, male, wealthy community, you know, to, to look a bit more broadly um, than that, I think is what we need to be doing a lot of at the moment. Um, but, yeah, just 
diverting some of the resources that we have to other people that need a little bit more than us. You raise a really interesting point there about sort of the need for more diversity in philanthropy and, mm. you know, the idea of the just a room of um, old white men um, of whom it is terrific that they are there and doing so much good, but, of course, um, certain personal experiences that can only come with one's um, background and upbringing are not captured there and that will lead to maybe different types of decisions being made. How is that kind of being fixed or, or addressed by this generation of philanthropy? Yeah, I mean, diversity in a foundation, it's often generational. You know, like I'm the most diverse person on my foundation's board because it's my parents and me, you know, like, and I'm not a boomer. That's not really good enough anymore. You know, we have a very narrow view of the world. Um, So there's, I think people are definitely thinking about it more um, in the next generation, you know, millennials and and below, um, about how to bring in different voices and we've been looking at it in our foundation whether we you know get a advisory group or you know get other people onto the board outside of ourselves and our responsible person um which is a weird way of just saying the accountant that makes sure we're not giving money to ourselves um (laughs) but yeah we've we're a year into a new strategy with the english family foundation where we've tried to sort of walk and work a bit more alongside our granting partners and listen to them a bit more about what it is that they need and ways that we can support. And then now, rather than just grant giving, we're also looking at how we can, you know, give our time and advice and skills and mentoring and support. And importantly, as the impact broker is what we're calling it, sort of connecting social entrepreneurs with other people in our networks, mm. so kind of acknowledging that um power and that role that philanthropists have in that government often listens to them a little bit more closely and sort of yep. opening up those doors and forging those connections. So that's something that we're looking at. Um, but yeah, there's there's a lot that we need to do in increasing the diversity in philanthropy, even in philanthropic consultants, like in my day job as a foundation manager, um, one of my colleagues pointed out the other day that there's you know, out of a dozen people that have a role like me, there's maybe two people of colour. You know, like it's yeah. a real issue, um, not just on the board level, but in the sector kind of more broadly. Well, and what does it look like? I mean, a typical day of someone like yourself, I mean, it sounds like pretty much to me as an outsider, like a dreamy kind of job where you get to sort of sit back and think, oh, there's all these opportunities to create social change. How do we, you know, how do they align with our pillars? You know, who should we mm. fund and how? Like, what do you kind of, um, what's your, what does your day look like? It, it is a pretty fun job. It's pretty nice um, being able to disconnect the dots for people, you know, people that are passionate about, a certain issue and have the resources, um, have the money there to give but don't know who to give it to and to kind of just go, oh, there's this really awesome person that's doing, you know, this work in family violence or whatever the cause there is. Um, I have, well, I was going to say have a lot of coffees with people, which is my normal response, but we're in the middle of a pandemic and I'm not having many coffees with anybody. <laughs> are you doing uh, a lot of Zooms or are you so actually many converting Zooms, them? Mike. Yeah, so, so many, many Zooms. Yeah, um, but it's. It's been a pretty busy time, sort of May and June, a, a big 
money months uh, in philanthropy, people getting money out the door, um, which is incredible. Last year, the clients that I work with gave over $10 million to charities in Australia, and it's pretty uh, incredible to be able to be a part of that, of sort of just a very small cog in that wheel that is um, other people's philanthropy, but it's um, it's a pretty special role to have. Doesn't you know? It's not all rainbows and puppies because no <laughs> job is. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of different relationships to manage. You're sitting within many families. You know, the the boards are often families, and so the psychology degree sometimes comes in handy. <laughs> I was going to um, ask you about that, like with the whole families thing, because obviously mm-hmm. you can't take on everything yourself. You're also in an advisory role separately, mutual trust. How do you kind of interface with other families? Do you have other families that you're kind of tight with that if you know you're kind of speaking to their um, their people and you know what they're interested in funding and you'll kind of cross-refer things? Does that sort of happen? Yeah, that's the... Um one of the really nice things about working in a multifamily office, which is what mutual trust is, um, so we work with many different philanthropic families and, can, you know, there's three foundation managers um, that work there and, you know, we work with, say, 40 different families and so we're able to go, oh, this group is also talking to them or they need a bit more funding for this project and try to um, be a bit more collaborative. And we're finding that families want that like all of our clients want to be able to collaborate and want to um you know leverage grants that they're doing to open up more funding but they don't know how to do it or they don't you know have those other funders at their fingertips that quite as readily available as we do so it's yeah it is nice to sort of be able to connect them up um some people still find flight to be like deeply personal and deeply private um we're not at the stage where people are singing about their giving from the rooftops like they are in the States. Um, but I think it's, it's getting closer to that. And our family, the English family, we do a lot of talking about our giving to try to encourage other people to give a bit more. But it's nice to see other people kind of taking that. Which, which I think is like um, vitally important. But I, I do get worried sometimes about like that impact uh, washing or that tendency to, you know, um, over-accentuate one's impact of, of the philanthropy that they do or what they give. Mm. And I don't think we're anywhere near what we see in the US, but is there kind of times when you're thinking, hold on, is what we're doing everything that we think it's doing? Is it having the impact that we think or say that it has? Or are we really just trying to give the impression um, maybe um, too much uh, of the sense of something's changing because of what we're giving? Yeah, definitely. I think it's, well, it's hard to measure impact. We, you know, demand that the charities that we support measure their impact, but very rarely does philanthropy measure its impact. Um, And part of that is, you know, you can't, you can't own the outcomes that a charity has created because you funded it, you know, like success is many fathers, right? So it's hard to go, oh, if not for us, that thing wouldn't have happened. Um, but there's definitely, we definitely need to be held to account to to think a bit more deeply about the impact that we're having and the way that we're supporting organisations to really, you know, make sure that it's having the greatest impact. And I think it's, also difficult for philanthropy which as i said very white very wealthy very capitalist you know most people didn't make their money working in the social sector they're now giving away and um making people feel uh 
comfortable with the idea that potentially philanthropic impact is going to be ending up with less power than you started with. Um, and that's a journey, I think, that the sector is going on as a whole at the moment because ultimately that's what the end result might be. That's and a really interesting observation. That's a super interesting observation about the, the power and, you know, um, whether impact equals power or power enables impact and whether, you know, ending up with less power uh, means that you've been less impactful or more impactful. And I think that that sort of takes me back to something you said earlier about wanting to just enable people who are closest to the problem to be able to solve it as being mm. sort of fundamental. Yeah, I think um, there's no one outcome, I suppose, that anyone is going for um, in in philanthropy, but the way that the systems are set up at the moment don't seem to be working, and I think that we need to rethink sort of the whole structures that we have. And a big part of that is, um, you know, redistributing a bit of the power that we've got. And w- when you say that, are you talking about how we subsist as a whole society, or are you talking mm. about philanthropy and how it distributes um, on its own? No, as a as a whole, as a society, mm. I think the the way that we hold people, certain groups up and um, don't hear from other groups. I think a, I don't know what the answer is, but I think that there's a very big shift that needs to happen. And it feels like at the moment there's a bit of a groundswell. It, it feels like there's enough people pissed off about the way the world currently is that we might be able to um, rethink the way that we're operating a bit more. Yeah, that's um, super exciting. And do you think COVID can almost be a bit of a, um, a an igniter of sorts that where we all kind of take a good hard look at ourselves and say, is this system actually functioning well or is it just what we've put up with for so long? Yeah, I really hope so. I, I was thinking at the beginning, you know, we've just gone into lockdown 2.0 in Melbourne um, and I was thinking at the start of it back in April, like we need to, this needs to last a little while for people to really know that we need to change the way that we're behaving. And that's an incredibly privileged thing for me to say because I'm saying that from my apartment that's got heating and from my job that I'm able to do from my desk and, you know, I acknowledge all of that. Um, but I think if if we shut down for four weeks and it went back to business as usual, you know, Nev Power would come in and say we've solved all the problems and back at it. And I think, you know, the way that the markets are responding and sort of staying, like I think I think we need to feel a bit of pain to, to kind of break out of that. Whole and what is the, it's a great answer, what is the sense making that has to take place on behalf of philanthropy? Because I, I sort of read some statistics recently that philanthropy has very much uh, thrown money at COVID. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and its immediate kind of impact. Mm. Um, is that the right thing to do for a philanthropic office to kind of shift maybe from its core funding priorities to something that's very immediate and maybe not in line with its purpose because that's what is demanded of now? Or is the more responsible thing to do or maybe the more right thing to do, in your opinion, to hold the line and and not kind of just tip everything into COVID? I think that there's not... Again, there's not one right answer to it, but I think um, I think more money did need to come into the sector. I think that um, JB Weir released a report that's expecting that there'd be a 20% drop in philanthropic giving over FY20 and 21. Um, and so people saw that and went, oh, we should give more. And so people have sort of given above their 
minimum distributions if they're in structured giving or they're donating more because they're seeing the bushfires and they're seeing COVID and they're seeing, um, you know, Indigenous deaths and custodies and Black Lives Matter and, they're, you know, people are waking up to all of the issues that are out there and they're giving more. Um, I think my ideal and what I've sort of been recommending to clients and what um, we've done in our foundation is sort of continue the support for the organisations that you're already supporting and then, like, yes and rather than instead of um, because the pandemic has impacted everyone, every every sector, like every organisation across the social sector, whether they're in, you know, arts or in mental health or in education or in, you know, pet therapy, whatever it is, mm. they've been impacted because they had to you know, not have fundraising events and they've not had... Um, you know, being able to travel to the places they have, they haven't been able to get into schools, whatever it is. And I think there's so much need at the moment and I think there's going to be so much need for a really long time that what people gave in May and June needs to be continued on because the government support's going to stop and that's going to really going to feel a lot of the pain. And so we're encouraging our clients and, and we're looking at, our foundation, the government is doing as well with incentives that they're giving to foundations to increase giving uh, this year as well um, because I think it'll take a long time to to see um, people through these times. Let me ask you another really tricky question that I'm not sure I have an answer on either, but um, you, you spend time with a lot of people who are very generous, so I, I'm guessing at your baseline you do think people are fairly generous um are Australians generous and or are we generous enough no I don't think we could always be more generous um they say that the average giver in Australia is a 46 year old woman earning between like 15 70 grand a year with two dependents at home like she's the person that's giving the most percentage wise of her salary um, don't ask me what the percentage is because I don't remember. Um, but it's not a lot, you know. Yeah. It's less. Couple, than a couple of percent. Yeah, yeah exactly. Less. Yeah. Um, and I think that is incredible that that she's giving that much. But I think we could all be giving more. Um, and I think I'm not religious, but I, you know, the idea of normalizing tithing and giving ten percent of your salary, um, if we could all be. Working I love that, that concept. One of my one of my favourite most workable concepts. If everyone just did it, um, imagine the difference would make. It'd be incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As an aside, that uh, the you know that forty six year old woman who's giving all of that money away. Um, if we meet gender parity, then it would be like an extra billion dollars worth of donations into the Australian sector, um, which I think is just kind of interesting because I'm a giving nerd. So there you go. Yeah, well, I think we need more giving nerds. I think that's 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 a powerful thing. Um, so, I mean, look, the the world is changing very fast, and I think COVID has been symptomatic of that. Um, mm. w- what do you kind of look at? I mean, if you're advising your clients, or even for yourself in your own giving, your family's giving, when you're looking at a not for profit or social enterprise, what are the first few things that you look at as being important to sort of maybe you know give you a sense of whether that is a kind of um, a good option for you to give to or support? Um, well, if it's aligned to, you know, the the values and the um, the focus areas of a foundation, obviously, is 
first and foremost, but I think we want people to be excited by the organisations that they're giving to, to feel some kind of connection to the cause, um, which, you know, again, when we were talking about COVID and sort of shifting focus, it's like everything can do with funding, but if you're not excited by medical research, then maybe, you know, stick to being really strict about the ballet, whatever. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I think being excited by something, uh, noting that um, the social enterprise, the charity, whoever it is, um, is sort of working from a point of sort of a bit of lived experience or a bit of understanding understanding of the cause that they're working in, uh, thinking that the person that's running it is a bit of a rock star always helps, you know, noting that they're, they're there and they're sort of going to steady the ship. I think it's, which is really tricky for the social enterprises and for little charities that are starting up having that kind of founder-led organisation and, and working through that transition. We're working through with a couple of charities at the moment that are at that point. But I think having that connection is, is really important and feeling excited and proud about what they're doing and that personal connection to it. That's a great answer. And how do you kind of make sure that you're not perpetuating too much the rock star effect of social uh, entrepreneurship where, you know, you've got one person, their idea is great, they're a rock star, um, you know, they're killing it. But, you know, with every person who's then decide, agrees that they're the cool person to give to or support, you know, you're missing some other great opportunity to support another person who's up and coming. Yeah. I mean, I get it. I worked at FYA for a year and I left there being like, maybe I could be a social entrepreneur. And then I was like, you don't want to be an entrepreneur, Rachel. You just like the idea of being a social entrepreneur because everyone wants to do it. And then I was like, oh, if not that, I'll go into impact investing because that's the sexy kind of philanthropy. Um, I also know nothing about investment, so that was a terrible idea. Like I think <laughs> there is the allure of these sorts of um, kind of buzzy parts of the sector. Um, and I think it's in, that's why it's important for philanthropy to try to do untied grants to get that core support in to figure out what the back end is and so as organizations grow they can get the governance and they can get the right sort of structures in place when it goes from being you know two people one person to being an actual team that not all of the money is going onto the the projects but actually figuring out the the back end so that at some point they can leave and things don't fall over my partner's starting a um a new business, not a social enterprise, not a plug, but he was talking to someone recently. They were saying like, start your business like you might sell it tomorrow. You know, like get all the stuff, get all the, you know, the toolkit there to hand it over and expect that you could be walking away at any moment. And I think that that's uh, a helpful way for all of us to think about kind of the work we're doing. That's really well said. Hey, during COVID, I mean, how are you staying afloat and coping? And do you have any kind of tips around um, well-being or maintaining one's sanity? Um, I have been doing a lot of yoga. I've been doing a lot of yoga with Adrian, like everybody else in the world, it feels like. Um, I meditate every morning, um, have done for quite some time. Um, Which app do you use? I I use uh, this thing called Muse, which yep. is like a. Have you heard of Muse? It's like a yep. headband that you put on it, follows your heart rate and your breathing and your mental activity. Um, my dad is a very big meditator, and for my birthday, he was like, "This is great. We can talk about 
meditation apps together and <laughs> bought me this use headband. Um, so I use that. Um, but then I also use Insight Timer if I want a bit of um, a guide through it. So that's been really helpful um, for me. Um, and there's a dog park just near me and I often go and just sit in the dog park and watch dogs play because dogs don't give a shit. Like they're just having a nice time. It's really awesome. That's a great yeah. tip. I've spent many afternoons in a dog park, so I rate that idea. Yeah. yeah. You... I don't know whether it's like I, I don't think it's as creepy as being an adult without a child in a playground, but no, I, I do feel creepiest. a bit weird being like an adult without a dog in a dog park, but I think it's okay. It's 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 a tier less creepy than being the uh, non-parent at a parent park. That <laughs> we all aim way. for that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless <laughs> we aim for the least creepy tier. <laughs> hey, do you have any good book records or things that you're reading, blogs, podcasts, anything you want to recommend? You know, I really want to say um, read Winners Take All by Nan Dearhardis, but I've been – reading it for two years and I, I keep getting like partway through and having to stop and start again because I'm a terrible reader. Um, but I, I, I want you to like me and so I'll tell you that that's the thing that you should read. Um, I, I listen to Brené Brown podcasts. I think that she's been doing some really great ones lately. Um, and the uh, Money, Myths and Morals, Barry liverman has been doing one like Jungian um, approach to the pandemic have been really interesting to sort of think about a bit bigger than my apartment of late, which I think is a, a good one to kind of get behind. Um, yeah, I think that's that's sort of been keeping me busy. Awesome. And then like a bit of trash TV and a bit of like trash podcasts as well just on the side. Oh, absolutely. We all need that. That's uh, awesome. Hey, so are we not talking to anyone on Humans of Purpose that we absolutely have to get on the show? I think uh, Tanya Stuhl is an amazing philanthropist in WA that I really rate. He thinks really deeply about um, how he supports First Nations people. Um, and Cara Peak, um, she works with a lot of the time and has been helping us in Nexus um, with our work. She's a First Nations consultant in somewhere, somewhere in the top end. Um, so I think they're great. I think. I don't know. It's pretty amazing your podcast, though. Like I, it just you end up interviewing all of my mates, all the people that I kind of idolise in the sector. It's quite a nice uh, way to just look through. Like, oh, I wonder what that person's been up to. Oh, that's right, Kathy Scalzo was. You know, like it's it's quite nice. Yeah, I, I guess in your circles, we de- we definitely do try and um, get people in the philanthropy space on because, as I said earlier, I think the work needs demystifying because I think it's mm. very important and it's potentially. Um, you know, social issue, game-changing work uh, that is not really discussed that well in the public domain. So, you know, th- those conversations that I, I put up with um, people like Kathy, Amanda, yourself, um, whenever I get the opportunity, I jump at it. Um, yeah. And I think, I think it's, it's important on kind of both sides of it though, right? Like it's important for, um, for people working in social change organisations to understand the mindset of, philanthropy and sort of how to engage with philanthropy but it's also really important for um people working in philanthropy to hear what's going on or people that are just sitting with their wealth and not doing too much with it to to understand that there's all these other ways that we can be um can be working there's this i think i mentioned earlier there's this giant wealth transfer that's coming through to from our generation from our parents generation to us it's like 68 trillion dollars in the u.s um, and they're estimating that half of that's going to go to charitable purpose, 
And so kind of harnessing those people that are going to have all of this, you know, wealth, connecting them with people that have stories in philanthropy and best practice in it um, and kind of funneling them through to all the other people on your podcast. I think it's good way to do it yeah well i think it, it's an important community sort of um as you as you said earlier like brokerage role where mm. we're really just brokering knowledge and wisdom from great people and sharing that with other great people who may find an opportunity there so on that note uh, where people where can people learn more about your work and connect with you should they wish to do so uh you can get me on linkedin uh rachel english on linkedin um i don't use it as much as I should, but it is one of my mid-year resolutions to, to use it more, so that will encourage me to do that. Um, otherwise, you could email me, rachel.english at mutualtrust.com.au. I'm also on the other social medias, but more in a lurking capacity in the background of it. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com.